Before we get started, a quick program note. This week, we're bringing you an encore episode from earlier in the year. It's about how to keep improving teaching gradually over time, rather than try some big new reboot. And I think it's a good one to end the year on. In this moment of New Year's resolutions and reflecting on how the last year has gone. Hope you're having a wonderful holiday season. Now here's the episode. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast. A weekly look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at Ed Surge. We're an independent nonprofit newsroom covering all levels of education. Justin Reich has taught at schools and colleges. He's now a professor at MIT. But his first teaching gig was not in a traditional classroom. My first job out of college was teaching wilderness medicine. So I worked for this school in New Hampshire called Solo, which taught a two-day wilderness first aid class and a 10-day wilderness first responder class. So if you were a Navy SEAL or a college outdoor trip leader or a Knowles instructor or an Outward Bound instructor or like a doctor working for Doctors Without Borders or something like that, you'd come take the courses we offer and learn how to take care of people when there aren't ambulances and hospitals and other kinds of stuff like that nearby. It was a hands-on course. And at one point, a volunteer would pretend to have an injured leg, complete with stage makeup blood to heighten the effect, and students had to improvise a splint from whatever they could find in the woods. And because these courses were short, he ended up teaching them over and over again, every week. I might teach that soft tissue lesson, soft tissue injury lesson 30 times a year, 40 times a year, 50 times a year. I mean, way more than say an elementary school teacher teaches a lesson on how to write a sentence or something like that, maybe in their whole career. And every time he did it, he would make some small adjustment to how he taught. You know, you would start the lesson with a joke and then you'd move the joke into the middle of the lesson. Or you would teach a lesson on improvised sprint, splinting and you would look at the students' improvised splints with the stuff they made in the backpack afterwards and be like, oh, that didn't work at all. Like they're all making the same mistake. Now, some teachers have to be like, all right, I'm, you know, I'll reteach that lesson or boy, I hope I can remember to fix that next year. But I had like another class next weekend. So I would just go to the next, uh, the next group of students and be like, okay, actually the way we're going to do splinting this time is this way. And he said he got surprisingly positive reactions to his teaching. People would often say, oh my gosh, you're the best teacher I've ever had. I've been, you know, I went through medical school. I went through 24 years of school. You're the best teacher I ever had. I, I was an okay teacher, I'm sure. But I think the secret weapon that I had was I just taught these lessons over and over and over again and could really refine them uh, so that they worked for my students. And I knew they worked because I could see in the, in the demonstrations that they would do during these scenarios whether or not they worked. Memories of the continual improvement that he was able to do back then have stuck with him as his career progressed, including jobs as a high school history teacher, an ed tech consultant to schools, a doctoral student and professor, and these days also director of MIT's Teaching Systems Lab. And Reich has made it a personal goal to share the lesson. What I'm hoping to help uh, school folks figure out is how do you create environments for experimenting with your teaching and learning that have the kind of short cycle experiments that have the kind of feedback, data, evidence that you can gather um, so that, so that you know, people can have the same kind of rapid growth that I was able to experience in that funny job where I taught the same classes you know, every week for a year. 
this longtime educator has put together his thinking on this topic into a new book called Iterate, The Secret to Innovation in Schools. And he writes that the main drive has been a curiosity about an even larger issue that he's observed as he's worked with so many schools over the past 20 years. That question, why do some schools get better quickly and others seem to get stuck? I recently connected with Reich to dig into this question. I will note that I have gotten to know Justin Reich over the years. He and I were both fellows about 10 years ago at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society, where we were both exploring tech and education. And Reich has written for EdSurge a few times. You can find his work there. And here is that conversation with Justin Reich. I wanted to ask, first off, like one of the things that, you know, that it seems like could be a thing that would help schools get better quickly would be having the right tools, like having the cutting edge technology. I mean, you're at MIT. It's all about, you know, the innovation world with tech. Um, and you've spent the last 20 years looking at how tech impacts schools. Um, what, what have you found there? So after I was a wilderness men's instructor, I was a high school history teacher, and I was not the first, but I was relatively early in the United States to have a classroom that was one-to-one with wireless laptops, with the internet. We had this uh, intranet server service called First Class that kind of did in 2003 just about everything that Google for Education does now. I did that for a few years, and then I had a really entrepreneurial colleague named Tom Decord, and we started this company called EdTech Teacher that did consulting for schools that were making big technology purchases. So I was traveling around to all these schools. Somewhere in there, I was also working on a doctorate. So I was kind of doing some research on schools. And if you spend a bunch of time with schools that buy technology, a sad thing that you will observe is that a lot of times teaching practice, learning practice just doesn't change that much. Um, I remember going to one of the very first schools that bought iPads for all their students. And we like walked around and talked to all the kids about like, hey, what are you really excited about with these iPads? Like they got cameras on them and they have all these apps. They can do all these kinds of things. And the kids consistently were like, man, I love other Evernote. I can take all my notes in one place. I don't have to carry around five notebooks. I can just carry around this one device. And I was like, oh, I don't think that's why we did this. Like, I don't think that's worth whatever it was, 800, 1,000 bucks per kid to like consolidate your notebooks for you. Like we're looking for- Replacing something. the trapper keeper. Yeah, as, yeah. As like, you, replacing you the I trapper remember. keeper was not the goal of this initiative. Um, you know, trapper keepers are great. I loved my trapper keeper. Why, you know, they like- Replace it with something electronic. That's ridiculous. Um, And so it was actually more uncommon to go to a place where things were really different. And one of the places that I first encountered where I was like, oh, there's some kind of interesting teaching and learning here was a charter school. uh, No, it it was a school district that I visited sort of in Southern California. And they had adopted... Google Docs relatively early and were making really great use of it. They were describing these kind of new practices of revision and collaborative writing. And it wasn't just happening in one class, but it was like happening in English, happening in social studies, happening in science. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. Like you all are are actually teaching writing differently because you got all these computers and you adopted a piece of software that's helping you um, teach writing differently. And so I was trying to figure out, like, you know, this is this is better than what I usually see. This isn't just replacing notebooks. Like, what's going on here? What what is it that you guys have figured out? So one of my one of my questions to the teachers there was, how are your school leaders helping you with this? And they were like, huh? I was, well, I mean, like your principal, your school leader, how are they helping you with this? And they're like, 
oh, I don't think they know what we're doing. Um, and I was like, what? Um, and like, I just sort of had this, like, they, they, they weren't, the principals weren't angry or the principals weren't, like, trying to stop this teacher revolt of Google Docs. There just seemed to be this kind of, like, benign neglect. Like, somewhere else in the building, there was some principal who was, like, keeping the boilers running and, like, m- making sure that substitute teachers were being hired and driving, you know, making sure the buses were driving their routes and something like that. While the teachers on their own were generating these really interesting new ideas, which weren't just concentrated in one classroom, but we're moving from one classroom to another and starting to change grade level teams, starting to change the way an important part of learning was done across the schools. And it just really struck me that you could do that without principals really having all that much idea about what was going on. So that seemed to be a sort of important clue to what some of these big ideas are about how schools actually change. And interestingly, so so it it's not a it's the tech doesn't guarantee and in fact it sounds like you've seen some where the tech didn't do much, but it 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 isn't necessarily leadership coming in and say and modeling it either. So um I had a colleague um named John Diamond who did a study during the NCB, uh, No Child Left Behind era um, called Where the Rubber Mits the, Hits the Road. And he surveyed teachers about a qu- bunch of questions, and he asked one which struck me as really important. He surveyed teachers and he said, who has influence over your curriculum and who has influence over your pedagogy? And to the question about who has influence over the curriculum, teachers actually gave a bunch of different answers. They would, oh, you know, my principal, the state, these other kinds of things. But to the question, who has influence over your teaching, they overwhelmingly had one answer, which was other teachers. Um, And kind of when I read that work and sort of put it in conversation with this really creative school district in Southern California, something really clicked for me. It was like, oh, If you want to get teachers to do something new, you have to get them to learn from one another. That is the main way that teaching and learning actually changes in schools. If you can take technology and you can dump it in, you can actually take just about anything and dump it in. Like one of the things happening across the country right now, which has some good stuff behind it, um, is all kinds of states, all kinds of districts doing more stuff like with science of reading, with changing the way we teach reading. If your view of those initiatives is that some, you know, state commissioner of education says, we're going to teach reading differently now, and all the teachers raise their hands and go, oh, yeah, that's great. We're going to do it. Like, that is not what's happening. Superintendents are not deciding what's happening. What's happening in those districts, overwhelmingly, um, is that teachers look at this new stuff and they go, eh, I'm not so sure. Um, most teachers are naturally suspicious of new ideas that come from on high because there's a new idea that comes from on high every year or two. Um, But what does happen is that there are always small groups of teachers in a school who are like, oh, yeah, this actually might be a good idea. I'm going to give that a shot. So these are these early experimenters. There's some teachers who just naturally get a lot of excitement about trying new things, about changing their practice. They get a lot of energy from that. There are some teachers who are particularly attached to some new initiative. You know, some teachers won't do it for everything, but they will do it for technology or they will do it for reading or whatever else. And most teachers are patient pragmatists. Most teachers are sitting on the fence watching these new things come along and waiting to see if there's some evidence, not 
not in the abstractions of research articles, but if there's evidence from their colleagues that these things help students. And if they get some of that evidence, they're willing to learn and they're willing to change practice. So what's happening, you know, what I was seeing happening in the Southern California district, what's happening in all these sort of science and readings districts right now is that a few teachers decide to try some stuff. Um, if it works, they informally share what they're doing with their colleagues, and then their colleagues pick up that practice, and as more people do it, there are more folks that are willing to share. And so it has this kind of flywheel effect. It's, it's very difficult for this to happen in like a lockstep, top-down approach. Um, instead, the better way to understand school change is that you know, well, there's lots of ways you can change schools that don't involve teachers, but they usually don't help student learning. If you want to change schools in ways that actually help student learning, you're almost always talking about having teachers change their teaching practice. And the way they change their teaching practice is by experimenting with stuff and then sharing the results of their experiments with their colleagues. Um, if you're a school leader, like this is essential information, essential framing for you, because essentially your job is to facilitate peer learning. If you want teaching and learning to get better in your school, it's going to happen because teachers try stuff and then share it with each other. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious, like what what tends to be the the trait of schools that that do that, that can improve their teaching um, and have through through something it's done other than just waiting for an amazing teacher to, to come in and and spread the the good news or something. Yeah, you know, and again, there's there there are there are these lightning strikes where where the teachers just on their own kind of do that. But I think there are a couple of different places where school leaders can intervene in this process. I call this cycle the cycle of experiment and peer learning. That when teachers get better, it's because they try some things, they share some stuff informally with each other, and. And then a few of them decide to plan kind of new experiments um, and the wheels start spinning. The job of the school leader, the district leader, is to try to spin that process as efficiently, as quickly, as joyfully as possible. Um, so things that school leaders can do is they can make it easier for teachers to conduct experiments. They can think to themselves like, what is my budget for research and development in this school? How am I helping teachers take some time away from their regular responsibilities so they can invest a bit in innovation, particularly in innovations that are part of kind of our district strategy? Uh, a second thing that you can do is you can create the conditions where teachers get a chance to learn from one another. You can help teachers get into each other's classroom. You can help teachers look at student work together. Um, you can create times and spaces where teachers can share their insights with one another. Um, you could think about like, all of the faculty meetings that you have over the course of the year, how could you shift as much of the conversation that happens in those faculty meetings towards innovations and improvements in teaching and learning? Like how can you take all of the logistical stuff and send it in an email or give it to people as a handout as they walk into the department meeting, walk into the auditorium, and how can you help turn as much of that time as possible into time about better teaching and learning? Um, 
And then there's some stuff about how do you make sure that all that experimentation doesn't happen in a thousand different directions? How do you help try to encourage a community to pick a few different things like the science of reading or like technology integration or like, you know, anything else that you project-based learning, whatever else that you think is important is going to help improve student learning. How can you help sort of all the experimenters be willing to kind of work on, you know, a couple of different things together? Um, that's the role of school. You know, now the hard thing for school leaders or instructional coaches or outside consultants is teachers are pretty clear if you interview them that they're not looking to those folks for, for direct instruction, for inspiration. There's some faculty who will be willing to listen to those people. But, it, you know, if you're a guy like me who used to run an ed tech consultancy or if you're a school principal, you really have to bring some humility to this work because the only people who can actually conduct the experiments, the only people who could take a new technology, you know, like at the time, Google Docs for writing and figure out how it works in a seventh grade earth science class is a seventh grade earth science teacher. That's it. That's the only person we have to figure out how that's going to work. Um, and then the only folks that other people are going to listen to are those teachers who are trying new things. So as an external consultant, as an instructional coach, as a principal, you have to have some humility and say, okay, what I can do is I can seed this environment. I can create the conditions for peer learning, but it's really my job to get teachers conducting these experiments and doing this work together. You know, the, I mean, to me, the other exciting thing about this model is it shows that teacher leadership is just essential for school improvement. You cannot improve schools without empowering teachers to be trying to generate new, better practices, going through these iterative approaches of trying one thing, seeing how it works, trying a little bit better things, and then sharing what they're learning with others. That's the only way that teaching and learning in schools gets better. And yeah, I mean, certainly there are and have been for a long time, lots of trainings out there for teachers. And in fact, here we are, the start, you know, we're in the summer, summertime is a big time when teachers are out there doing their professional development. Um, but you said something I, I was a little surprised by. You said that teachers rarely practice teaching. Um, what do you mean by that? So teachers sort of have two spaces that they learn. Um, one of those spaces is in like a college of education classroom or a seminar room where you can kind of talk about teaching and then you go and actually do it. Um, that is not the way that we improve in most circumstances. Like if you went to the New England Patriots and were like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop a new play and I'm going to explain it to you and then I want you to try it against the Broncos, they would be like, that's a bad idea. Like we should go out onto a practice field and we should try that thing a few times first under situations of reduced complexity. And you'd be like, oh, that's a good idea. Why don't we invent practice? Um, and, uh, you know, part of what we have to do to help teachers get better is to is to try to make the chunks of what we're experimenting with small enough that we can iterate on them. Um, small enough so we can say, hey, in our next faculty meeting, why don't you teach a 10 or 15 minute mini lesson where we try this new thing? Um, or why don't you, you know, like give your students some pizza and have them stay after school or invite them, you know, invite them to come to lunch and preview some of the material that you're going to teach in the next unit and get their feedback on it and have them practice some of them stuff. Have them start doing the final assignment a little bit early. Like there, there are some kids out there that get excited about those kinds of things. You know, when we were doing... Um, 
education technology improvement, some of the best allies that schools managed to come up with were things like student tech teams. You know, the, the Burlington High School in Burlington, Massachusetts was one of the places that sort of famously set something like this up first, where like in the beginning, you could send a tweet or a text message and like some kid would like roll into your classroom with like a projector bulb and screw it in for you or fix some other thing. But eventually they like set up a whole genius bar where like if a teacher had an idea about how they wanted to do something or just an idea that like they wanted this lesson to be kind of different. Maybe they thought some of the new tools the school was adopting would help the they would get high school kids who would like mess around this stuff and be like, you know what worked really well for that? Like I heard my, you know, my, my classmates tried this in this other class and it was a flop, but this thing worked well, or here's the thing that I've been playing around with that I think I might help for that. You know, so you're, you're paying these kids with like a study hall and some class credit or stuff like that. Um, and you're getting all this valuable help from the people, you know, who are kind of most involved, who have the most at stake in, in whether or not teaching and learning works. Yeah, that's no, I, I, I hear you. And, uh, you know, I, I wonder, you, you have mentioned something that I was going to ask about, which is that there are, you know, you mentioned the science of reading, and there have been school innovations over the years that have ended up doing more harm than good. I, you know, like the, some now discredited techniques um, around teaching young kids whole language instruction that the, the podcast Sold a Story was all about, if people are familiar with that, but there's been a lot of talk about this these days. Um, so there's there's a chance that a teaching innovation could do do harm, you know, if it's if it doesn't work. How, how can schools and teachers make sure they're doing interventions that are effective or or at least not worse than than the alternative that was going on already? Yeah, you know, some of that is a job for kind of whole schools, whole districts, researchers, things like that. But I would say if I had two pieces of advice for teachers, it would be number one to Bring a mindset that when you try new things, you should be looking for evidence that learning is changing. Um, there are many, many schools that I visited. Sometimes, sometimes we'd go to a school district after it had adopted technology for a couple of years. And, you know, they would bring us in to help refresh the initiative or figure out what's going on. One of the questions I would ask is, well, is it working? And they would often say, well, I don't know. Um, and then the second question would be, I'm not even sure we knew what we were trying to do. Like, you know, we just spent like half a million dollars buying computers for everyone, but there wasn't a clear sense of like, well, what are the learning outcomes that you would like to be better on the basis of having made these investments? Um, so some of it is just saying like, and when I try a new thing, do I have a clear sense of how the learning would be different? And is there some artifact of student learning that I could look at to see whether or not I'm making progress? Um, it is usually, usually the better markers of learning are not students' immediate reactions to things. This maybe leads to the second piece of advice. I have a colleague at Vanderbilt, Alana Horn, who cautions educators against smoothness. Um, a lot of times when we evaluate lessons, we're like, how smooth did that go? Um, now, I'm not advocating for lessons that are a disaster. I'm not advocating for like total confusion or things like that. But a lot of times, smoothness is not a good proxy for learning. Like you can very smoothly get a bunch of kids through an exercise and afterwards be like, oh, there was just no room for questions. And so they didn't ask any or they were like so completely not with it that they didn't know what to ask or how to intervene or other kinds of things like that. You know, and there's a certain amount of desirable difficulty. There's a certain amount of friction that we actually want in the learning process. So, you know, one piece of advice is to, as you're trying new things to say to yourself, 
What are the artifacts of student learning that I'm going to be able to look at afterwards and get some sense about whether this thing is working better or not? Um, and two, I want to be cautious about using some intuitive measures um, or sort of intuitive indicators like smoothness of a lesson that might actually be distracting me from looking at the, the most important thing, which is, um, which is learning. You know, I keep thinking back to your example of the wilderness training you did. And, you know, it seems like you were you were saying in this tiny, you know, kind of microcosm and where you taught it over and over again, you had a sense of like when you made a change, the impact, you, you could sort of see it and do it over and over. And it, I, I'm kind of wondering, like, why I'm sure you got to a point where you're like, oh, this worked better than that. And they seem to be getting it like they succeeded in, you know, getting the 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 splint on or, or whatever it was. Why then keep changing, you know, and, and how do you know when you're done? You know, what is the motivator? Why did you, if you think back, like, why did you keep, you know, making changes even after you sort of had it pretty good? Yeah, I mean, I think I had a bunch of feelings that were very similar to feelings that other teachers had. Um, one is, you know, we taught like a 10-day wilderness first responder class, a two-day wilderness medicine class. That is a really short amount of time to teach people everything we wanted them to know to be safe in the woods. And we wanted them to be safe. Like there were nice people who we met. We wanted them to be out in the outdoors. We wanted them to be advocates for, you know, environmental protection and climate change and all those kinds of things. Like, you know, those were sort of the larger reasons why I was teaching classes like this. Um, if I could tweak a lesson so that it took 15 minutes instead of 20 minutes and it got better outcomes in the 15 minutes than in my initial 20 minute version, then I just got five minutes back to do something else, to push the curriculum a little further, to help people learn a little bit more. Um, I mean, I do think I empathize with, with the kinds of teachers who are like, whatever we're doing, it will be more fun if we keep making it better. Um, and that I think is sort of a crucial theme. I, I, you know, I think there are lots of teachers that you can get to feel that way. Uh, presently, there are many teachers who think professional development is pretty boring and pretty lame. And that is an unfortunate indictment of our education system. Um, but we're, you know, why are teachers in this business? Like, it's not because the pay is great. It's not, it's not because of the, you know, the social rewards of being recognized as a teacher. It's because it's incredibly cool when kids get better at stuff. Like, that is just a really fun moment. Um, and if you improve your teaching practices, you get to have more really fun moments that are like that. Um, and, you know, our, the work that we do as educators is just infinitely complex. Like there's no place that a first grade teacher stops and is like, okay, we've like covered enough writing this year. I mean, there are in kind of a logistical sense, but not in the sense of like, no man, like that first grader can go further. Like we can get them to, they can include one more detail in the next sentence that they write. They can, you know, fix one other kind of spelling error. There's like, there's always sort of one more step uh, that we can move forward with the students that we work with. Um, but, you know, I mean, a challenging part of our educational system is we don't give teachers enough time to be able to do this kind of improvement work. Teachers in the United States, compared to our peers in other countries around the world, spend way more time directly in front of students teaching them um, than, you know, the, the colleagues in comparative, comparatively affluent countries have more prep periods, have more time for collaborative learning. Um, we don't pay pe we don't pay teachers more. We don't have any kind of like uh, pay scale or improvement ladder. Or, you know, sort of career ladder that rewards them for getting better at teaching. And so 
it, it, it really is discretionary in many respects. Like teachers have a lot of capacity to take a new initiative and be like, eh, I'm not that into it. And close their classroom door. You know, I, I, I think one joke in the book is like, you know, there are million, literally millions of teachers that we made write their instructional objectives up on the board. It doesn't mean that anyone ever looked at it or that it changed teaching practice at all. Like teachers are masters at minimal compliance with new initiatives. So what is it that makes teachers decide, oh, I want to do this over and over again. I want to keep iterating. I want to keep experimenting. I want to keep learning from my peers. One of the main things is that it's fun, is that it's joyful, is that when you and your colleagues work together to make things that help students learn better, that is a great feeling. Uh, and so part of what we have to do is be intentional as, you know, as school leaders, as teacher leaders about trying to cultivate that feeling in our colleagues. Now, another part of the book, which I think is, a, I'm not the first to talk about this, but I do think it's sort of under-discussed is that also when you change stuff, people will feel loss. Um, if you change people's practices, they will be like, oh, it's sad that I'm losing that old practice. And the new practice might be great. It might be better. It might be really fun to do with each other. But change is inevitably woven with loss. There was a, a guy. You, you, mentioned, you even mentioned that even if the new thing is objectively better, there's loss. Even if everyone sort of agrees that the new way is, is absolutely the most effective or more effective. It's just a natural part of changing our practice. There's a guy named Robert Evans who wrote a book called The Human Side of Change, which did a great job describing uh, some of this. It's, it's, uh, um, there's a story I tell about uh, when I was a ninth grade world history teacher, we, me and my colleagues had sort of inherited this kind of death march world history class that like started with pre-hominids and tried to get to the Renaissance, like covering, you know, an empire every other day or something like that. And at the end of one year, we were sort of standing around being like, I don't think any of us actually like this course. Like, I think some guy a long time ago whose name none of us remember liked this course and designed it. But like, I, like our students aren't telling us I like it. The kids who really like history are telling us I like it. Um, and the way we decided to improve it, which is a good strategy for, for iteration, is just try to think about like, well, how would we do less? Um, what if instead of trying to do all this stuff, we try to do fewer things? So we created a world history class that looked at contemporary conflicts and traced the identities of the people involved in those contemporary conflicts into the ancient world. Um, and as we were trying to figure out how to do less, we said, you know what we don't need to do as much of is the Greek and Roman Empire. Um, like, like we teach that in middle school. We get like, we get that kids get that in other ways that we also have a whole classics department. Like if there are kids that really want to geek out about the Greek and Roman empire, we have a whole language program that helps them do that. So let's get rid of that stuff and we'll find some time to do that. Now, my dear colleague, Tom Decord, um, he, a lot of his identity was wrapped up in some really great units that he had put together on the Greek and open Roman empire, like great teaching, great stuff that student got. There's nothing wrong with it. We just had to make some choices to do less in order to have a program overall that was better. You know, and in the end, Tom was like, Tom, you know, fully got on board with what we did and he thought the new class was great and helped teach other teachers how to do it. But it's still, you know, it still hurt. Like, I don't think we did enough at the time to just acknowledge for Tom, like, yeah, you're grieving. You know, it is a normal thing to grieve practices that we have to let go of, even if we don't think they were effective. But in this case, they were. Um, and so, you know, um, I, uh, I taught, there, there are a couple of online courses that are associated with the book. There are these free online courses that are available at the MIT Open Learning Library, Launching Innovation in Schools and Design Thinking for Leading and Learning. Um, this course that I taught with uh, 
with Peter Senge here at MIT, who's a business school professor launching innovation in schools. Peter says, you know, people always think that leadership is neck up activity, um, that it's all head and that it's just about sort of reasoning. And it's just not true. You know, and these are like, you know, quantitative nerds at MIT who have like, you know, studied outcome data from firms and are like, ah, you're actually going to have to deal with human emotion to do this well. Um, and so... Yeah, joy and loss and inclusion, like these are big themes for making innovation work in schools. You've given a hint of this, but I did want to just put it bluntly. Like, why is it so hard? I mean, there are, there are a lot of the, you know, you, you hear what you're talking about. I'm sure there's head nodding going on if people have the, as people have their earbuds in listening to this conversation. But then again, you know, you sort of, you definitely mentioned some challenges right now that professional development is often seen as boring, that a lot of places, a lot of schools are, as you I think put it, stuck and they're not, they're not innovating or getting better. Um, so why, why is it so hard? Schools are incredibly complicated places that have to address a wide variety of competing demands. In you know somewhere today in the United States, we're recording this in late June, so there's still some school districts that are open. But they're like they're going to be teachers who teach kids how to tie their shoes, who teach kids how to conjugate Spanish verbs, who teach kids how to factor polynomials, um, how to write a letter to their congressman protesting some new policy, how to follow the law, how to say the Pledge of Allegiance, how not to have sex, but if you do have sex, how to do it in a safe way. There's just like a lot of stuff that we ask schools to do on every given day. And, and each of those teaching and learning practices would actually benefit from a different set of, um, of conditions. You know, there are a whole bunch of math teachers who are like, you know, what works really well is if I can see my kids for like 20, 30 minutes and then have them have some time to practice and see them tomorrow. And then there's a bunch of social studies and science teachers who are like, what I really need, I don't need to see my kids every day, but if I get like 80 or 90 minutes with them a few times a week, that would be really the best way to do deep inquiry work in my discipline. Those things are irreconcilable. Um, and so what we do... In other words, we cannot, you literally cannot make everybody uh, give the formats that would work for every you, different you discipline. Can't, you can't optimize all all of these different pieces. And so you end up with this whole series of trade-offs. And when you try to change parts of school, you end up tugging against something that someone else seems, you know, thinks is kind of really important. Um, and so, you know, um, sometimes I describe this challenge as the, 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 the another part of the challenge um, is that we just allocate to our teaching staff limited time for innovation. Um, they're in front of their kids, they're grading, they're working, they got a lot of stuff going on. You know, I think almost every teacher in the country has a time budget every year that's devoted to getting better. It's maybe not as big as we'd want. Um, so if you want to see big changes, you run into what I call the someday Monday dilemma, which is that we can imagine ways that schools could really be a lot better. Like we could imagine different kinds of arrangements of all these different pieces that we were like, all right, this wouldn't be perfect for everyone like Tom's going to lose his Greek and Roman units but like think about this new class like this could really work better and make us feel a lot better um, but the only way for the most part that you can get to someday is with a series of Monday steps like you can make some big changes over the summer a few other times a year but like once September rolls around um, the only sort of new innovations that you can initiate are ones that teachers can fit in that little time budget they have day after day. So you have to think about like, how could we have an approach 
to big change that comes as a series of small steps. Like how could we sequence together a series of sort of Monday size changes that get you to a better someday? Um, you know, when I was teaching wilderness medicine, I never said to myself, we're going to throw out the whole lesson. We're going to like get things and just have it be completely different. We're going to like invent a whole new approach to splinting or a whole new approach to soft tissue injuries. Um, instead, what it was, was like a series of small changes that as they accumulated over time, um, ended up being pretty big improvements. Um, and you know, and sometimes those improvements were structural. Sometimes you do change the whole class or the change the old unit, but we don't always have to start with like, Oh man, this thing isn't working. Let's, let's get rid of it and try something completely different. We can start with like, I'm not sure our schedule is working. What if we all agreed for one week in the spring that we would test out a different schedule and see how that works. Um, what if, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to, you know, launch a whole new course on this topic. We're going to teach one unit on that topic for a week and we're going to see how that works and see what kind of student demand is and how they react and things like that. Um, when you, when you take things that you're experimenting with and you break them down into small enough pieces, they become more actionable and manageable for teachers to, to try and to implement, to experiment with. The other thing that's really important is that if you want to do really good iteration, you have to be able to let things fail. We do not have good ideas every time we go sit down at a table to have ideas. You have to put yourself in a position to say, all right, we're going to try this new thing. And if it's lousy, it's going to be okay because we didn't put so much of our weight and energy and everything into it. We tried a bunch of sort of lightweight prototypes were first, you know, we put them out in front of a few students. We put them out in front of a few of our colleagues. We tried little things. And then we thought, you know, we're getting some good evidence that this might be a better way. That's when we start in, you know, accumulating more time, more investments into things. You know, interestingly, th there are a lot of ways that industry is sort of moving in this direction too. Um, in the 20th century, if you were like, how is the United States going to have huge new sources of electricity? You'd be like, let's build the Hoover Dam. Like, let's build the largest dam the world has ever seen in a giant river and make tons and tons of electricity. Um, that's not, in the 21st century, how we're going to generate massive amounts of electricity. The way we're going to generate massive amounts of electricity is that we're going to cover the surface of the planet in very small solar panels. Um, and each of those solar panels is going to be like slightly better every year because of some small improvement that some company somewhere makes in them. And we're going to put them like a few on this roof and a few on that roof. And someone's going to make a policy um, that we're going to cover all of our new parking lots with solar panels. And someone else is going to make a tax credit. And there's going to be all these little pieces that is going to make solar power like one of the cheapest ways to generate new electricity. Um, and... Uh, and, and, and I think schools can be inspired a bit that we can do things in a solar panel modular way rather than in a Hoover Dam kind of way. Like the Hoover Dam is kind of an intimidating thing to build. You can't really prototype. I mean, you can sort of build like a sandbox for it, but you can't build like a third of the Hoover Dam and be like, ah, oh, that's not working. Let's try another thing. Um, but you, if your solar panels are modular, you can. You know, one of the things that I, I feel like a little bit, a little bit devil's advocate is one of the things we, we cover innovations of all kinds at EdSurge these days. And, and we hear a lot about the challenges, especially after the pandemic in recent years with student mental health and, and behavior challenges from trauma at home and, and all kinds of just kind of a, a challenges that aren't just academics. And a lot of our conversation has been around, you know, making teaching better. And it kind of assumes a kind of uh, that the classroom situation is kind of in a certain stable setting. I guess, 
how, yeah, do you have any thoughts on how to, to implement the kind of advice you have, you know, in a, in a world where schools are really struggling and then there's the, the culture war around schools and, and in various states more so than others, there's just all these challenges to the teaching profession that, that are not just the curriculum. I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Oh, yeah. I, th- I think these kinds of challenges are amenable to an iterative design-based approach to solutions, too. Take something, you know, a huge thing the schools are addressing right now is chronic absenteeism. Um, one of the, you know, that's, connect- that's an academic problem in the sense that the kids are not showing up. Well, how are you going to address, you know, chronic absenteeism in your community? Well, it's being caused by a whole bunch of different things that are going on simultaneously. And none of us know exactly what's going to get these kids back into schools. And so, you know, part of what you want to do is not put huge bets on any one particular approach, but try to, you know, field trial some lightweight prototypes of a few different kinds of things, um, and then try to put more resources behind uh, the things that are working. You know, there are some culture war. Uh, I, I think even, even addressing the culture war, you'd come up with sort of similar kinds of things of like, okay, we have a minority, uh, a, a, a loud vocal minority of parents that has some really strong feelings about certain kinds of things. And they're actually trying to sort of change the ground rules of these conversations a little bit. Um, so that instead of saying, well, here are some topics I'm going to pull my students out of it's here are some topics that I'm going to try to drive out of the school system entirely. Um, but again, you'd say like, well, what are the ways that we can keep doing the teaching that we want to do that we think is really important, um, but you know addresses the legitimate concerns of of some critics while also you know building a coalition of the vast majority of American parents who are pretty satisfied with the approaches that we have in schools to race and gender and other kinds of things. Um, you know, none of this is saying that these solutions are easy, but it's also sort of saying to folks like the way that we're going to make progress on these really hard problems is trying to develop a vision of what much better would look like and then coming up with a concrete way of step by step getting there. I, in the spirit of iteration, I'm, I want to come back to the the big question you raised and, and in a way you know, don't even refer back maybe to all the things we've talked about. Um, but, but if you had to add, you know, answer in a short, you know, just a, a shorter elevator version, what do, why do some schools get better quickly and others seem more stuck? In the schools that get better quickly, they have teachers who are inspired to try new experiments and do no th- do new things. And then they have environments that are congenial to teachers learning from one another. So those cool new ideas don't just live in a single classroom. They have a chance to move across departments, move across grade level teams. Um, when schools get better, it's because there's a culture of peer learning among teachers. There are lots of different versions of that peer culture. There are lots of different ways of doing it. Um, you know, and, it, and, and that variation is why 
there's no single playbook or recipe. There's no recipe for sort of solving these problems. I mean, when I was doing stuff in technology innovation, I would go to some schools and they would be like, well, of course, all the cool stuff is happening in the math and science classroom because like that's where technology is happening. It doesn't really have that much to do in history and social studies and, and English language arts. You go to other schools and they'd be like, well, of course, the interesting things are happening in English and history. I mean, math and science, that's just math and science, right? <laughs> you know, you sort of like wanted to introduce the people in these schools to each other um, and be like, no, 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 don't you see? But, but, but part of what you have to do is sort of like honor the uniqueness of your own institution. There's a set of exercises that I have in the book called Four Questions for Innovation, which really try to get people to start with like, what do you think you're best at? Like, what are you most proud of here? What is the most important stuff to you? That is a really important source of, of strength, of assets for innovation. Because, you know, to some extent, we like fixing broken things. But even when we're fixing broken things, we really want to be building from the stuff that we're good at. Um, you know, and then like the other sort of secret sauce to the whole thing is if it's not fun and enjoyable and joyful, teachers won't do it. Um, and so that has to be like a very serious consideration in all this. How are you going to make it so that teachers feel like this is important? This is meaningful. You know, we know teachers have and school systems have incredible latent capacity for change because that is what we witnessed over and over again during the pandemic. I interviewed a group of high school educators in Madison, Wisconsin, um, about 18 months into the pandemic. And one of them said to me, we know how to change. We've been changing every three weeks for the last 18 months. If we know everything, we know how to change. Part of what I want to do with Iterate is like, okay, the pandemic was super hard for a whole variety of reasons. And we did change then and we don't quite want to do change like that ever again. But there's a lot that we learned. Like we don't need buildings. We don't need school buses. We don't need schedules. We can have a lot more breaks. We can change the rules. We can change the expectations. Everything that we thought was fixed and received in schools turned out to be malleable and plastic and changeable. Um, so in an environment where we don't feel those same kinds of really terrible pressures and really terrible constraints, um, let's say we don't have to, we don't have to be crazy pandemic schools and we don't have to just return to the old normal that was working, we can move forward using that same energy and capacity that we discovered during the pandemic, and we can apply it to a new set of challenges. You know, none of this is easy, but I think in the schools where teachers are happiest, they feel like some of this kind of work is happening. So I hope Iterate um, can help more teachers, more school leaders uh, learn a bit about some of the playbooks for change that work. And it's really about, you know, having ambitious goals and thinking about big change, um, but also thinking about how do we make that change happen one small manageable step at a time. That's what Iterate is really all about. Well, I guess the last question, how optimistic are you that significant, you know, kind of new, the change you're describing or the types of change are, are possible or, or going to happen in the next five, 10 years? I'm always, whenever you spend time with students and teachers, it will make you optimistic about schools. Um, schools are filled with brilliant teachers. I mean, the, the next book project that I'm working on, you know, this one's kind of wrapped up. The next book project I'm working on is about teachers' work during the pandemic, during COVID-19, um, how they were 
constantly thrust with what seemed to be totally impossible obstacles. Like, we'll need you to, without any warning, completely invent online learning. And then, you know, in March of 2020. And then actually, we'll need you to invent a better version of it in the fall of 2020. And then we're going to have students come back, but we're actually only going to have half of them come back. So we're going to need you to invent this thing called simulteaching, which is like literally impossible. Like, it cannot be done, except you interview these teachers and they're like, yep, it was terrible and I hated it, but actually, here's how I made it work. And then all these students came back to school in, with all kinds of hurt in their heart and teachers had to reinvent schools and school practices for, for them again. And like none of it worked perfectly, but it's not hard to find stories of many, many teachers around the country that did incredible work reinventing their schools to the challenges of the day, um, just as teachers have done for decades in this country. Um, and they'll do it because young people are going to show up in their classroom, both with like just, you know, pouring with needs, like kids are always pouring with needs, but also with the kind of hilarity and creativity and imaginativeness and insightfulness that youth bring. Um, and sort of in that crucible, amazing things will happen and they're not going to happen as fast as we want them to happen. And there's heartbreak in there too. And there's challenge and things like that. Um, but we've got amazing young people in this country who want to see a better world. And we've got, you know, this incredible teaching force of 3.5 million teachers. Not all of them are great, as you might expect, with 3.5 million teachers. But really, a lot of them are pretty amazing. Um, and, uh, and they're going to continue to do great things in the classroom. And I really hope Iterate can help them. Well, thanks so much for taking all this time. We really enjoyed talking to you today. It's been a pleasure, Jeff. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like this one. If you like the show, please follow the EdSearch podcast wherever you listen. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, just about any of the apps that are out there, we should be there. And if you want to dig deeper into the issues we're talking about, sign up for our EdSurge podcast newsletter. Just go to edsurge.com, click on the word newsletters. This episode was put together by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at jryoung or on the web at jeffyoung.net. Editing help this episode by Rebecca Koenig. We will be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.